Thank you for joining us this evening. So, we are in November, and we are on our third Narrative Medicine Rounds of the semester. My name is Sunny Bergua. I am a bone healer and a faculty member here at the Narrative Medicine program uh, downtown. And I also um, work as the lecturer in spirituality and healthcare here in the Medical Center during the spring semester. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, Wow, we've just had such wonderful rounds this year. We are meeting every Wednesday of the month, or excuse me, the first Wednesday of the month during the academic year. And we come together with thought leaders, artists, writers, to bring it together to understand more of how we are in tune with the work of narrative medicine. And so tonight, I am very honored to be able to introduce a friend and colleague who is here to introduce one of her, um, I understand, favorite people, um, Nellie Herman. And she's going to be introducing the programming here tonight. And before we continue going on, I would like to let you know of our last Narrative Medicine Rounds of the semester. Um, it is Writing a Biography, The Promise and Peril of Telling Someone Else's Life a talk by Professor Morris Spiegel. And this will be located at uh, Columbia University Medical Center, Bard Hall, or Bard Hall Lounge, uh, 50 Haven Avenue. And we would love to see you there. That will be on December 4th from 5 to 7 p.m. So, I'd love to introduce Nellie Herman, our Creative Director of the Program in Narrative Medicine. And have a great evening, enjoy. Thank you, Sonia. Hi, everybody. Um, so I'm beyond excited to introduce you all tonight to the great Deborah Levy. Deborah and I were colleagues last year in Paris at the Institute for Ideas and Imagination. Um, I knew of her and had read her work before we arrived and met each other in Paris, but I could never have expected that she would become as important a person in my life as she has. And to have her here with us tonight and to get to introduce her to the work of narrative medicine as well as to introduce all of you to her um, is really a, truly exciting for me. Um, and it's something I've been waiting to do really for, for, for a few years, um, ever since I first read her work, the novel Hot Milk, um, which I read in 2016. Hot Milk is a novel which takes up questions of hypochondria and what it means to tell and to hear stories of illness um, Deborah has been described as a master of the contemporary psychological novel, and even the reading of that one book bears out this description. One quickly understands that it is less about how we tell stories of illness than it is about how we understand who we are and how we live in the world with whatever that understanding may be. Um, to get her just basic bio out of the way, Deborah Levy is the author of seven novels, the last three of which, Swimming Home, Hot Milk, and The Man Who Saw Everything, were all nominated for the Booker Prize. She's written two works of memoir, or as she calls them, Living Autobiography, Things I Don't Want to Know, and The Cost of Living, both have, of which have been widely translated out of, around the world. She trained as a playwright and was um, one of the first female writers to write for the Royal Shakespeare Company in Britain. Her acclaimed full-length dramatizations of two of Freud's most iconic case histories, Dora and the Wolfman, were broadcast on BBC Radio 4, as was her 10-part adaptation of Carol Shields' novel, Unless. 
Also for the BBC, she dramatized the stories of Catherine Mansfield and Colette. In 2019, she wrote the script for a six-minute film called Freud's Lost Lecture, which will be screened at the Freud Museum London later this month. Deborah has taught writing in the animation department of the Royal College of Art, is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and was a fellow last year with me um, in Paris. Deborah is an artist who is engaged deeply with questions of what art is for, what it can do for us and show to us, and how it might lead us in conversations that we might otherwise not have. She is always challenging in her work the way that stories are traditionally told and proving to the rest of us that there can and perhaps should be other ways. In her novel Swallowing Geography, published in 1993, her protagonist says, it is possible that classic rules of form and structure do not fit this experience of existing and not existing at the same time. It seems to me that this statement can perhaps summarize Deborah's work as a whole. She is always concerned with questions of existence and experimenting with how techniques of storytelling might, as she once said about one of her novels, use language like a needle to pierce the surface and let the unconscious of the, no unconscious of the novel crawl through. She is always pushing herself and all of the rest of us further in her work, refusing to accept the way the world is said to work and challenging each of us to refuse it as well. Parul Segal wrote recently in the New York Times, Levy's rich, obsessional body of work is consumed by questions of how scripts of gender, nationality, identity, paper over how fundamentally, how painfully unknowable we are to ourselves and the ca catastrophes that this blindness sets in motion. I would add to this idea of scripts the fact of trauma, both personal and societal, as Levy's work is often concerned, too, with the ways that the past is never really past. Reading her work produces in the reader what Deborah herself has called an uncanny effect, echoing Freud's notion of the uncanny as something that has been repressed and now returns. In Hot Milk, her protagonist says at one point, I confess that I am often lost in all the dimensions of time that the past sometimes feels nearer than the present, and I often fear the future has already happened. In her recently published novel, The Man Who Saw Everything, she quite literally takes up the content of this quote and inhabits it. Um, I won't say too much about this book because I'm hoping she'll talk to us about it, but I will say that I'm not sure I've ever read a novel that so successfully replicated for me what it feels like to be alive. We all have so much to learn from Debra Levy, and I'm so grateful that she's taken the time and her, I happen to know, very grueling tour schedule to spend the evening with us. So I, without further ado, my friend, Debra Levy. Thank you so much, Nelly. That's an essay. That's, that's like a... Uh, a sort of beautifully composed piece of critical writing. I feel so honoured. Thank you, Donna. And, uh, it's, it's great to be here. And I'm sorry my voice is um, a bit hoarse. If you can't hear me, uh, just scream. I'm here today to mostly talk to you about my 2016 novel, Hot Milk, and its conversation with narrative and with medicine. So my understanding of narrative, amongst other things, because, you know, writers are always arguing about what narrative is and it isn't. But um, for me, it's a tool 
that connects one thing to another thing. It's something that makes its apparatus, that makes a connecting conversation. <clears throat> or it is a tool to assemble a number of fragments into a conceptual scheme. And an example of that is, um, say, a, a story by John Cheever, one of my favorite uh, story writers, called The Swimmer. And um, his conceptual scheme is that he has this uh, character, uh, Nadie Merrill, who we kind of know quite soon on is down on his luck. And it's set in Connecticut in the 60s. He is looking at the swimming pools in this rich suburb of Connecticut. And he sees that the pools sort of make a river. And that he is going to uh, dive in and he's going to swim through every pool in the neighborhood uh, until he gets home. And he's going to call the river, the River Lucinda, after his wife. And that's what he does. And we know um, that as he gets closer to home, uh, home's not going to be a great place to be. So the conceptual scheme are all those swimming pools becoming a river, naming the river Lucinda after his wife, and attempting to, to swim home. And it was that uh, story that so influenced my novel, Swimming Home. The other thing about narrative and about language uh, more generally is that it has a behaviour. So um, Roland Barthes, the French critic, told us this. He said, language behaves in a certain way. And I love this way of thinking about language. So you could say, um, yeah, um, this page, this, this language is very angry, or it's very lyrical, or it's, um, this language is very speedy and fast, or it's very slow kind of thing. And as an example of behavior, um, which I would imagine um, all medicine is interested in too. Um, here are three poems from my collection, An Amorous Discourse in the Suburbs of Hell. And this is about a female angel who is washed up on the shores of Britain and she meets a male accountant and he takes her in and they argue. Um, and uh, so it's written in a he or she um, voice. And the inspiration for this was William Blake, the British poet and mystic and radical, who, when nine years old, was walking on, Hams uh, on Peckham Rye in South London, and he saw nine angels in a tree. So he went home and he said to his father, Dad, I just see nine angels in a tree. And his father said, don't tell lies, William. And became worried about him uh, and decided to school him at home. 
So, in a way, this is my um, homage to William Blake. So this is the male accountant talking, he. There you are, all wonderful and winged and leaking that smile. Let me in. Want to walk through snowstorms, burning for you, peeling oranges for you, shimmering and shivering, my assured modern woman. Who are you, anyway? She. I have come to save you from the suburbs of hell, to rub my skin against the regularity of your habits, to bend your thoughts like a spoon, to find your memories lost in software, dived like a thought out of paradise into your acrylic arms. So those are just two poems. And that those poems behave, right, in a, in a certain way. And um, <clears throat> poetry is very good to, to sort of read and figure how, how this language is behaving. So on to um, Hot Milk. Um, what a title. I wrote an anthology of short stories called Black Vodka, and when they got translated, um, my um, publishers in Europe used to take me to vodka bars. And then I went and wrote, written, wrote a novel called Hot Milk. So why? Because I knew that hot milk might trigger sort of uneasy associations uh, in you, because it, hot milk does in me. So <clears throat> I kind of think of a... That, you know, that skin that forms over, over milk. And, um, but hot milk isn't quite the same thing as warm milk, which in Victorian England used to be given to children when they were sickly. There was always, you know, um, and in the 30s and then in the 50s, um, there was always a, um, the idea that a, a cup of warm milk with some honey or sugar in it would be nourishing and calming. <clears throat> and this in, this in turn leads to a sort of trigger of maternal milk. So what about hot maternal milk? As we know, our relations with our own mothers can sometimes be quite hot. And when she is angry, her words scald us. At the heart of the story in Hot Milk is a mother called Rose, 64 years old, and her 25-year-old daughter, Sophia. Sophia Papisteriades. She's got a surname no one can pronounce, no one can spell. Her father was Greek and her mother is from Yorkshire in the north of England. But her father had left the family house when she was five. So she doesn't really know how to inhabit her Greek identity. Um, but she wants to know. And, um, and that's one of some of her, her many problems. Uh, her biggest problem is her mother 
who is a hypochondriac, that's you or me or someone we know, every family has one. So when I say hypochondriac, I'm not really judgmental, I'm not pointing the finger. Um, I would say that is to a degree, right, all of us. But Rose uh, has taken this to quite far. She seems to have some sort of limb paralysis. Sometimes she can walk and sometimes she can't. Um, and she has used her body, she has used her sickness to gather to her all the love and attention she craves and needs and to keep her daughter Sophia very close to her side for much too long in Sophia's life. Mother and daughter go on a contemporary pilgrimage to the south of Spain to visit a clinic to find a cure for Rosa's legs. So I've always wanted to write um, a character that's a kind of shamanic doctor, a serious, a serious medical professional, but who who is quite, quite shamanic, quite, quite um, eccentric, but totally serious. And so we have in hot milk um, a consultant called Dr. Gomez, and like Charco. Um, Freud's mentor in Paris at the Salpêtrière. He has a monkey, uh, Charcot, who was uh, nicknamed the Napoleon of neuroses, um, used to patrol the wards of the Salpêtrière with his pet monkey. But Dr. Gomez has a stuffed monkey um, in a glass case behind him with all his equipment. The other thing to say is that Sophia feels as if she's been a girl detective sleuthing her mother's symptoms from an early age. What's wrong with mum? What's wrong with mum? Yes, she's got a headache, but what's really wrong with my mother. And Rose has incredible rages and a scalding tongue. Um, <clears throat> okay, and it's set in the south of Spain, in the desert of Spain, in Almeria. Um, I often like to do that in my books, to take um, British characters or hybrid characters, a bit from here, a bit from there, and take them uh, to somewhere that's unfamiliar. Um, Henry James did this and Forster did this, took their Americans and their Europeans and took them somewhere else, um, just so that uh, things become a little bit less familiar and, um, and, and all characters are out of their comfort zones. And so in this place, in the south of Spain, with its big stars and big constellations, um, not least the Milky Way, which is another reference to the title, um, Sophia 
who feels like a failure in her life. She feels she hasn't finished her doctorate. She doesn't really know where she wants to go next. She doesn't know how to describe herself to herself. She doesn't know what she desires. She doesn't know how to get unstuck from her mother. Um, she needs to become bolder. And in this book, um, Hot Milk, goes some way to finding some ways for Sophia to, to be happier. The big landscape of, of Spain um, makes her feel smaller, though. You know how we can feel smaller under a big constellation of skies, of stars. It uh, makes her feel even more of a failure um, and slightly mystical. So place in my in my novel, geography in my novel, is for atmosphere and mood, um, the unfamiliarity of a new country, but it's also there to intensify feelings. And a poet that Sophia reads is the Mexican poet Octavio Paz, and she reads this poem of his. I am a man, little do I last, and the night is enormous. But I look up, the stars write, unknowing, I understand, I too am written. And at this very moment, someone spells me out. Well, Sophia doesn't feel spelt out. She feels invisible and undervalued. <clears throat> so, one of the strategies to make um, Sophia bolder is to look at myth. And when I was in this part of Spain, there was a jellyfish infestation in the Mediterranean Sea. And in Spain, jellyfish are called medusa. I think because of their long tails. So then I read Ellen Sisu the philosopher and psychoanalyst, um, a book called the, Last, the, the Laugh of the Medusa. And I used her quote right at the beginning of the book. It's up to you to break the old circuits. So the old circuits that Sophia has to break is that dynamic with her mother. So she swims in the sea and she's stung. Um, by these Medusa. But actually, that, that sting isn't, isn't a completely bad thing. It sort of stings her into action. And she herself, uh, she's got very curly hair, she becomes more and more Medusa-like in her looks, in that her curls become matted, she sunburned, um, and as she becomes bolder, there's a conversation about the monstrous feminine because the Medusa myth is such a weird myth. And we won't go there too much. But, uh, Medusa was a young maiden. This, this is the myth as told by Ovid, there are other tellings. And she is raped by Poseidon 
in Athena, the goddess of war's temple. And what does Athena do? She punishes, uh, she, she punishes the woman who has been hurt. And Medusa uh, is cursed by Athena, and she is given um, snakes for hair. And a very interesting curse, which is that anyone who looks at her, who will hurt her, she will turn them to stone. It's a sort of curse, but who hasn't wanted to do that, right? Who hasn't wanted to look at someone who is really undermining them or whatever and turn them to stone? So the telling of this myth, somehow, um, according to Robert Graves and other mythographers, wasn't actually told correctly. It's a myth. Anyone interested in sort of researching this myth you'll have a lot of fun with it and you might come to the conclusion that Athena, who is the goddess who supports the patriarchy, goddess of weaving and mathematics, is also Medusa because every single statue you will see of Athena, she has the plate of Medusa um, just here. So it's as if she's a very controlled woman and a very wild woman and she needed the power that she gave to Medusa to turn her enemies into stone uh, Athena needed that power as goddess of war so it's a split between um, you know Medusa and Athena might possibly actually need a whole new retelling so, I'm just going to go in to some of the book. <laughs> so, uh, this, is, this is Sophia getting herself uh, prepared to take her mother to the clinic. My mother had instructed me to wash her yellow dress with the sunflower print on it, because she will wear it to her first appointment in the Gomez Clinic. That's fine by me. I like washing clothes by hand and hanging them out to dry in the sun. The burn of the jellyfish sting started to throb again, despite the ointment she had smeared all over it. Her face was burning up but I think it was because of the difficulty she'd had filling in occupation on the form at the pharmacy after she had been stung. It was as if the poison from the Medusa sting had in turn released some venom that was lurking inside her. On Monday, her mother will display her various symptoms to the consultant like an assortment of mysterious canapes, and Sophia will be holding the tray. Then we go back into the first person. So Jacques Lacan thought that the hypochondriac is asking a question he or she does not want answered. So every time a, a physician, a medical practitioner, gets close to a diagnosis, the hypochondriac will 
will have another mysterious, unfathomable symptom. So the hypochondriac, possibly, you can tell me, doesn't want a diagnosis, doesn't want to be pinned down in narrative. And every time you and I go to a medical professional and we say we have a headache and the uh, doctor says, uh, when did they start, when did it start? And all of that, that the doctor is taking a narrative. And the hypochondriac wants to not, um, wants some, doesn't really know what kind of story he or she um, is after, right? So it's very, very interesting in terms of narrative. We have begun the long journey to find a healer. The taxi driver hired to take us to the Gomez Clinic had no reason to understand how nervous we were or what was at stake. We had begun a new chapter in the history of my mother's legs and it had taken us to the semi-desert of southern Spain. It is not a small matter. We had to remortgage Rosa's house to pay for her treatment at the Gomez Clinic. The total cost was 25,000 euro, which is a substantial sum to lose, considering I have been sleuthing my mother's symptoms for as long as I can remember. My own investigation has been in progress for about 20 of my 25 years, perhaps longer. When I was four, I asked her what a headache meant. She told me it was like a door slamming in her head. I have become a good mind reader, which means her head is my head. There are plenty of doors slamming all the time, and I am the main witness. If I see myself as an unwilling detective with a desire for justice, does that make her illness an unsolved crime? If so, who is the villain and who is the victim? Attempting to decipher her aches and pains, their triggers and motivations, is a good training for an anthropologist. There have been times when I thought I was on the verge of a major revelation and knew where the corpses were buried, only to be thwarted again. Rose merely presents a new and entirely mysterious symptom for which she has prescribed new and entirely mysterious medication. The UK doctors recently prescribed antidepressants for her feet. That's what she told me. They are for the nerve endings of her feet. As the driver steered his cab into the palm-fringed grounds of the Gomez Clinic, we glimpsed the gardens that had been described in the brochure as a mini-oasis of great ecological importance. Two wild pigeons lay tucked into each other under the mimosa tree. The clinic itself was carved into the scorched mountains, built from cream-coloured marble in the shape of a dome. It resembled a massive upside-down cup. 
I had studied it on Google many times, but the digital page did not convey how calming and comforting it felt to stand next to it in real time. It took 14 minutes to walk with Rose from the car to the glass doors. They seemed, these doors, to anticipate our arrival, opening silently for us, as if gratifying our wish to enter without either of us having to make the request. I gazed at the deep blue Mediterranean below the mountain and felt at peace. We had travelled a long way from home to be here at last in this curved corridor with its amber veins threading through the walls. <clears throat> so then uh, a nurse who is the doctor's daughter, Julia Gomez, wheels Rose to see her father. Thank you, Nurse Sunshine, Gomez said to the nurse as if it were normal for an eminent doctor to name his staff after the weather. She was still holding the door open as if her thoughts had wandered off to roam on the Syria, <laughs> onto the mountains. Dr. Gomez raised his voice and repeated, close the door, nurse sunshine. This time, she shut the door. I could hear the cracking sound of her heels on the floor. This is the nurse. First at an even pace, and then suddenly faster. She had started to run. Dr. Gomez spoke English with an American accent. Please, how can I help you? Rose looked baffled. Well, that is exactly what I want you to tell me. And Dr. Gomez smiled. His two front teeth were entirely covered with gold. They reminded me of the teeth on a human male skull we studied in the first year of my anthropology degree, the task being to guess his diet. Dr. Gomez's tone was vaguely friendly and vaguely formal. I've been looking at your notes, Mrs. Papisteriadis. You were a librarian for some years. Yes. I retired early because of my health. Did you want to stop working? Yes. So you did not retire because of your health. It was a combination of circumstances. I see. He looked neither bored nor interested. My duties were to catalogue, index and classify the books, my mother said. He nodded and turned his gaze to his computer screen. May I refer to you now as Rose? Yes, you may. It is my name after all. My daughter calls me Rose and I see no reason why you should not do the same. <coughs> Dr. Gomez smiled at me. You call your mother Rose? Yes, I said quickly, as if it was of no importance. Can we ask how we should address you, Dr. Gomez? Certainly. I'm a consultant, so I am Mr. Gomez. But that is too formal, so I will not be offended if you just refer to me as Gomez. Oh, that is useful to know. My mother lifted her arm to check. 
that the hairpin in her chignon was still in place. And you are just 64 years old, Mrs. Papasteriades. Had he forgotten he'd been granted permission to call his new patient by her first name? 64 and flagging, my mother said. She coughed as if to clear her throat and then nodded and then coughed again. Gomez started to cough too. He cleared his throat and ran his fingers through the white streak in his hair. I was not sure if he was mimicking or mocking her, if they were having a conversation and groans, coughs and sighs. I wondered whether they understood each other. <laughs> so uh, this relationship goes on and um, one of the kind of things that's concealed in the book because all narratives reveal or conceal something and all nar- the, the, the sort of trick of all narratives is, is to give the right information at the right time is that uh, the reader sort of is, is led to believe that Dr. Gomez is a quack that he really doesn't know what he's doing And what's revealed later is that he absolutely does. That Rose is um, actually very ill. And uh, Sophia, by the end of the novel, um, is bolder and resigned to talking to her mother about death. Um, so that's 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 the arc of that. And I'm just going to end, uh, and you can ask me anything you like, with uh, a sh- two pages of an essay I wrote on Freud's um, earliest patients, which speaks to the inflection of my narrative, which is obviously, which obviously has a psychoanalytic inflection, but I don't like any kind of theory dragging its heavy boots through my fiction. Um, and this is called Them and Us. We owe a great deal to the grandly expressive female hysterics of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Their apparently inexplicable symptoms, loss of voice, paralysis of limbs, anorexia, bulimia, chronic fatigue, fainting fits, indifference to life, were asking subversive questions about femininity. What does it mean to be a woman? What should a woman be? Who is her body supposed to please? And what is it for? At the start of Freud's career in patriarchal Vienna, he was under the impression there was one sexuality and that it was male. Fortunately, he changed his mind, but he humbly confessed that after 30 years of professional practice, he still did not know what a woman wanted. Yet Freud was witness to the most modern of female questions and conflicts. 
Unlike his mentor, the pioneering French neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot, Freud encouraged his patients to speak freely and without censorship. This was no small matter considering how callously women had been silenced by the societal restrictions of their day, and not least by their families, many of whom were sexual predators. We must thank these women for telling their stories to Freud in his consulting room in 19 Begastrasse. Anna O, Emmy von N, Dora and Jane Avril all struggled with myths about female character and destiny. In their attempt to find words for disabling, disabling despair, Freud tuned in to their most awkward and shaming memories. Psychoanalysis was born when he discovered that it was, that it was possible to interpret rather than medicate symptoms that had no biological or neurological cause. The diagnosis of hysteria, which began with Hippocrates in the 5th century BC, now erased from the DSM, um, is, it's very interesting that it's erased, yet we all know that trauma, the Greek word for wound, has not gone away and neither have the girls and women who self-harm. If the birth of psychoanalysis offered methods to investigate the unconscious mind, there is no doubt that personal and political conflicts, and above all, rage and hopelessness, continue to speak through the body in our century. Hysteria is not about them, it is about us. So that's the that's the inflection through through the book, Hot Milk. Um, please do feel free to um, ask me anything you like about narrative or um, or indeed this book. Everything in my reading of it, um, it kind of 
it, it kind of avoids narrative in this kind of, I would say, brilliant way. It doesn't, it, like if someone were to ask me, what, what is the book about? Mm. Not, it's not a story. It's, mm. it's more about a, to me, it's more about a, um, a I don't know, a feeling or a, a philosophy or, I mean, all kinds of things I could say, but not like, oh, this happened and this happened and then this happened. So. Um, I just would like to hear you talk a little bit about this most recent book and specifically um, how you conceived of writing a book that resists narrative in the way that that book does. Mm. Um, yeah, well, thank you for that excellent question. Um, the book behaves as if it resists narrative. Right, so we're back to behavior again. Because the worst thing is for a novel to behave like a novel. And I've read two autobiographies. And so if autobiography starts to behave like autobiography, you sort of imagine this wise voice with lots of hindsight, looking, looking back at, at things, telling um, history um, in our favor. Because on the whole, we tend to tell history in our favor. Right. And the man who saw everything is about um, a man trying to cross a road for 30 years. Kind of thing, isn't it? And I take a personal history, the history of Saul Adler, 28 when the novel starts, freakishly beautiful, a little bit careless uh, with others, careless with himself. He gets knocked over by um, a car on the Abbey Road, London. And he's a man coming into consciousness, coming either, I don't think it's back to consciousness, he's coming into consciousness. And that has two meanings, literally being knocked over and sort of coming, coming to. But it also means coming to some sort of understanding of his own culpability in his own sorrow, actually. So, Nelly, I would say that um, there's probably more narrative in that book than there appears to be. Um, but there is an accumulation of, um, and a repetition, isn't there? There's accumulation, there's, there's acceleration, rather, and, and repetition. Um, I was interested in how I could take a personal history and a collective history, that of post-war Europe, the GDR, and sort of plait them together, braid them together um, to tell this particular story. So it's told in the first person um, from a male point of view. And there's something so shamanistic about writing characters. Uh, it's one of, I think it's the most mysterious part of writing, actually, um, to literally get under the skin of a character. Uh, there's, that odd, there's that odd moment where you're writing and, um, and you're sort of totally in control of things and your character answers you back, begins to speak. And that's when you know that you can sort of, you, you, it's, it's all sort of working you know, that, that um, things are going right. As for psychoanalytic theory, um, yes, uh, I have read uh, 
when my kids were at school, I found the playground when they were young so interesting um, that I started to read all of Freud. I didn't have any exams to pass or anything like that. I started with the psychopathology of everyday life, then the interpretation of dreams. And I thought, this is great. This is giving my life so many more dimensions, and I understand the dynamic in the playground so much better. Um, and, uh, and then uh, it used to make, Freud used to make me laugh. I'm not even a Freudian, right? But I, I thought, ah, oh, he's taking such a lot of care to unfold the avant-garde science of the unconscious for someone as dumb as myself. Like, you know, for a, for a lay person, I was very grateful. And when he, um, what really hooked me was that when Floyd came to America and he gave a talk at a podium like this and he was trying to explain what a repression uh, is, and so he had this very theatrical way of explaining it. He said, okay, you are heckling me. I tell you to go out of those doors. I ask you to put two chairs against the doors and to lock it. And I continue to speak. And you start to knock. All, all the way through my talk, you you're knocking like this. So that's repression. So as he's talking, the, the, you know, the repression is knocking at the door. And the only way that, the only thing to do is to open the door, remove the chairs, and invite the repression in and have a conversation with it. And I thought, this is rock and roll. <laughs> that's so interesting. And it became very, very useful to me just gave my life more dimensions and my characters more dimensions. Um, not in any fixed way. I'm not interested in arguments about psychoanalytic theory, but very interested in how performative and theatrical he had to be to explain something impossible. And, um, and, I, and I guess that the, the, um, the joy of writing is not just to reach for impossible ideas and somehow land them. Like, who would write a novel about hypochondria? You know. Um, but to make something that was, that's invisible, visible. Like that repression. Writing, writing it will help me sort of get a bit closer to it. Um, I like, I really like questions. So for instance, the British writer J.G. Ballard, he asked himself, what kind of personality will survive the 20th century? Because that's, that was his century. 
and he decided it was the psychopath. <laughs> so he set about creating a character, a tennis coach called Bobby Crawford, um, who is a psychopath, has tremendous certainty, no doubt about anything. And it's true, people who have no doubts about anything at all tend to be psychopaths. And, um, and he creates, he, so he embodies all, the, all, all his, 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 his own theory in this tennis coach. So that's, so that's good. Uh, my next novel is about the doppelganger, the double, a female protagonist will see her identical female double. And um, I, have no, I have no idea what will happen next. She glimpses her. Um, and then, I, then something happened, and it's always, it's really always something in the body. I thought, what if a woman is walking through a park on her own, and ahead of her is a woman and a man, and the man places his arm around the woman's shoulder, and as he does this, the woman turns round, and it's her identical double, as if to say, hmm, look at me. So she's sort of, look at my life and look at your life. So, it's, so it, it would be, it's always something in the body, and it's always something to do with um, love. Because love is so much more subversive to write about than hate. There's more to lose, there's more to risk. So when I write characters, um, although it's a lot of fun to write a hater, um, actually the more, uh, the harder person to write, harder character to write, is a loving character. Much more complicated. Thank you. Um, going back to Hot Milk, I was curious about whether the character Rose was instinctively and meant to be female. Uh, could you have written that? Was it deliberate or was it just how it happened? That's a very good question. Uh, could it have been a male hypochondriac? Um, yes, absolutely. I think some of the dynamics would, would, would probably be the same, maybe with a father and son, right? I don't know why it wouldn't be a father and daughter, actually, but a, a parent and a child uh, would probably um, be the same. But for Rose, um, there's so much undisclosed rage in her. And there's so much, um, her, her body is doing the talking for her, right, is, is doing the chattering for her. So um, I think that is quite female, uh, not to say that it's exclusively so, but that the body, the protesting body does, does the talking and the acting out, yeah.
extremely well formulated question, but um, I was curious um, what you make of the, the contemporary obsession with wellness and the wellness industry mm -hmm. and how that perhaps seems to encourage hypocondriacal narratives in the sense that everyone is supposed to be getting more well all the time, but that means that you are somewhat unwell all the time. Um, and I'm just curious if you've thought about that. I haven't thought about it, but I will now. <laughs> Do you think we are, how well are we feeling? <laughs> um, I don't really know what to say about it, except that um, it's good to feel well. And um, I guess a lot of money can be made out of our fears about not feeling well. Um, and so then the question, it would be that old question, you know, what's the meaning of life? Kind of thing. Um, That's so, a question. Yeah. So, so, so the sort of, if we drill down to the sort of whole wellness thing is uh, what do we need and what, what do we need to, to feel better? Um, yeah. And that is a question that I, I ask of everything I write, something very simple. Who wants what and what's stopping them getting it? Very difficult to ask that of ourselves and, and to answer it. When you say you were committed to her, did you did you um, was she interesting? Did you find did you find her her symptoms interesting? It's always interesting. Yeah. Maybe you should have done more talking. Right. 
Did she do all the talking? Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I, <laughs> you are my burden. That's a great line. Did you did you come near a diagnosis? Well, she, I think she had truly back pain. Mm-hmm. The cause of purposing. But um, yeah, and I think she had. Well, that's always such a problem in clinical medicine, and one should take the whole. And would you agree with me that the hypochondriac is avoiding a narrative, avoiding yes, a story? Yeah, that, that, yeah. Just, that thought just came to me. Yeah. And I don't mean to imply that I was part of a narrative. Yeah. Like that. But that wherever it was, she kept coming back for years. So she didn't want she didn't want to be pinned down to any one story. Uh, that is so interesting. I mean, it is a fascinating subject. Thank you so much. Hi, thank you so much. I'm over here. Hello. <laughs> thank you. Um, I can see why Nellie wanted you to speak with us. I really appreciated how you, in your story, in your uh, reading your work and talking about it from this sense of uh, avoiding the binary and leaning into the question. It's very narrative and unseen. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Um, I noticed that you used the word shamanism in mm-hmm. form of it twice. Once in talking about Dr. Yeah. And once in about writing, uh, writing characters. And I wanted to ask if you would maybe talk to us a little more about that. Um, I can say that for me, what comes up is a sense of embodiment mm-hmm. and connection, um, interconnection, um, as opposed to a kind of isolation and you know, uh, right. medicine. You know. Yeah, I mean, I don't, it, I, it probably isn't the right word, is it? So it's, it's, it really is about uh, being able to it's about empathy. It's about being able to enter the mind and body. Actor, actors have to do this um, of an other. And presumably surgeons have to literally do that too. So, um, uh, <laughs> so maybe another word would be as a sort of kind of seance with, with, with the consciousness. Of, of, of someone else. And I think that's what Nelly was referring to with um, in The Man Who Saw Everything. Because Saul Adler's mind doesn't behave like a novel. And it's, he's not thinking in chronological time and all of that. Um, so, um, so that was a really interesting story, story to write. 
So it's just, it's, it's just really about having profound empathy, a profound communication with, um, with some, a fictional, a fictional character. It's pretty weird stuff, isn't it? Quite weird. Um, but um, all characters are really, sort of come from the world and are a sort of medley of people in the world. Um, so that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. Thank you, of course, for um, for for uh, accepting Nani's invitation to join us. Uh, so, Rashawn, I, I, I thought had some way of connecting um, what goes on. Hello. Hello. Where yeah. are you? Oh, hello. Yeah. Uh, Ashawn, I think, connects us to some other power. Uh, uh, not a deistic power necessarily, but a ritual power, a power, a cosmic power, a universal power, a natural and, and And it just strikes me that I want to waver that power for, um, for your Medusa. It, it, it can't be just the one brief minute. Is there, is there a power in, in your own world, your imagined world, that you as the shaman I don't know generally, generally how to answer that, but for Sophia, um, she discovers that she has more power uh, becoming monstrous. Um, and what monstrous means is up for debate, right? Having more agency, being less patient, being less, not smiling all the time, um, um, not always being there to endlessly listen to her mother, to actually leave the room, to start behaving badly. That gives her a lot of power. It's very good for her. So it's a discussion, really, not with some, something particularly mystical, but, um, but, with, but with something else altogether. How does she stop? How can she discover what she desires and how can she act on her desire? Um, and that helps her sort of have a break from her mother, really, the monstrous Medusa. One last question. Hello. Where are you? Hello. Strange question. Yes. I'm thinking of the present political structure in the U.S. and Britain with Brexit. Yes. And if they were open to the truth of hot milk, <laughs> would that make a difference in the leadership? Oh, that's a responsibility. It's a great. It's a great question. Um, so I think your question is, what is the unconscious of, of, of both these, um, of Brexit and um, what's happening here? So 
we'd have to look at narcissism and we'd have to look at why why increasing nationalism and um, what's that about and what and the way that uh, nationalism is related to very rigid ideas of masculinity fixed ideas of fragile masculinity uh, in both cases um, and we'd, we'd have to really get together and we'd have to drill down and find out um, what are these unconscious impulses that are um, at work here um, so I couldn't ask it I couldn't answer that with with hot milk but there's certainly some symptoms around right and um, what in Britain anyway, in, in uh, my country, uh, the man who saw everything is really looking at how history is told, who's left out, who's left out of the telling, uh, how we might, how we're spoken over, who's, these are the questions it's asking, who speaks for us, um, and how we have to make another language altogether. So uh, the man who saw everything might speak to your question more than hot milk.